Thank you for joining us for another episode of EK on the Go, recorded here at Jack Straw Cultural Center in Seattle's University District, currently featuring an art exhibit called Submergence through the Endangered Species Coalition. Our current episode is just in time for baseball season, and more on that soon. Last time we met with Margot Rose Hancock and Rosalie Daggett of the Queen Anne Historic Society, and we spent time learning about Queen Anne Hill, one of Seattle's old neighborhoods. Today we're going to shift our focus to an equally compelling community, Seattle's Rainier Valley. And rather than viewing the community from adult eyes, we're going to view it from the eyes of a child, thanks to the imagination of a Seattle writer. Today we'll explore the creative process of a local author, the secrets held by the people and places in one of Seattle's most beloved neighborhoods, how these secrets might get lost, and how they might be preserved through storytelling. And we're going to expand upon how storytelling defines us as human beings. Our guest today is Mark Holton, author of A Ticket to the Pennant, A Tale of Baseball in Seattle. Welcome, Mark. Thank you. Nice to be here. I was wondering if we could start out, Mark, if you could just share a little bit about your journey kind of through life. Where did you grow up and what brought you to Seattle? Sure. I grew up in Oregon. My mom grew up in Tillamook and left home at 18, went to Portland. My dad met her soon after I ended up, I was spent my entire childhood there, a lot of camping, a lot of time at the beach. That, and went, this is Portland? Outside of Portland. It's Tualatin, okay. so southwest of Portland. It was a super small town at the time. It's totally changed by now, but I went to Oregon State in Corvallis. I studied art and graphic design, and then actually lost a friend to suicide at in college and then just moved to Ketchum, Idaho to spend time in a ski town. Hmm. Just not really ready to go and do whatever I was going to do, thinking uh, any corporate things or graphic design things. So um, that ended up being a pretty wonderful experience. Just didn't have much money to do the ski resort lifestyle, but I worked hard in a lot of a wide array of jobs and bookstore, art gallery, delivering magazines, just whatever I could piece together. And I was there, but ended up staying there about eight years. And then someone saw me with kids, said I should look into teaching. So I went to Boise for grad school and got my master's in literacy and uh, elementary education and then started teaching down in the Bay Area for six years and then met my future wife and she was she grew up here and was heading back here and said you're welcome to come if you want but I'm going so and I was pretty ready for a change so I came to Seattle okay wow that's a lot of um, crisscrosses but all sort of on the in the west mm-hmm. all in the west yeah and you, I read in the Pig War that uh, kind of an author's note that you had visited the San Juan Islands when you were 13. Mm-hmm, yeah. What Mi- brought you? So you were here a little earlier. Mrs. Eggleston, science teacher, what, seventh or eighth grade. Yeah, she did a trip every year to the San Juans. I, I don't remember much about it except these old duffel bags, my old 10-speed bike, taking the train from Portland. It felt adventurous. It felt big. Uh-huh. And then you know, getting off the ferry and having to climb the hills off the ferry dock was a low point, <laughs> but I survived. And you are, your day job is as, as a teacher currently? Uh, I am, I've been out of the classroom for three years. I've been home, stayed home dad for three years, but okay. yeah, I taught up here for another decade. So I had wow. 16 years with third graders. Good. And then you have how many kids? Two kids. Two kids. Yeah. Yeah. Through COVID. Through COVID. Yeah. It's I, awesome that you've been home. I survived. Yeah. yeah it has been nice. And then how did you connect with your current publisher, Sasquatch Books? 
I was starting to think story quite a bit, and I had been working on The Pig War, a middle-grade novel, pretty piecemeal, throwing it together when I could, taking weekends. Um, my school librarian knew a bookseller that was interested in publishing, and she, it was kind of lightning strikes, right time, right place, but um, she knew I was a storyteller, she knew I was a teacher. We talked about stories, she then took a position as an editor and just said, I want you to work something up for me. So we, we, uh, I had a list of ideas already brewing. I was starting to fade from teaching into storytelling with more passion. So it was the perfect time. And then can you share a little bit, we'll talk more about storytelling. And I know that there's, you know, a quote from you that just, you do feel that storytelling is something that's fundamental to us as human beings, that we are storytellers. But I'm just curious how you made the shift from teaching into storytelling or into sort of focusing on that, you know, becoming a writer. Yeah. Yeah. In retrospect, I think you hear this often, there are so many signs. I remember in grad school seeing uh, someone who had their master's or did their th some thesis in storytelling, and I had this moment of, how do you do that? I had no idea people studied stories that in-depth, and, and it intrigued me. I never thought I would make a change then, but it was fascinating to me that that could happen. Is storytelling teaching? Yeah, stories. You're steeped in stories in school all day long. They're creating stories where I'm, I'm, I better come up with compelling stories for kids or they're going to eat me alive. It's just a constant, yeah, it's a creative place. So I, my brain was tuned into that already. So it sounds like what you're saying is that if you want to be an effective teacher, you have to tell stories. Otherwise, what you share, you know, the meat of what you're sharing won't be remembered or it won't be powerful. No. Is that accurate? That is absolutely accurate. And I, it's, yeah, and it's creating eight of those compelling stories per day, if not more, or the kids just aren't engaged. And that's not okay if you're trying to be a, an effective teacher. And what is the connection between memory, between remembering things and hearing them as a story? I'm more in tune to emotional resonance. If I hear something like, I don't know, compared to my dad, he remembers every highway we ever drove on every vacation. I'm much more of a you know, I'm tied to the emotion of a place. So if it's if something happened there that had an effect on me, I remember that. I'm not a data guy. One of the things I ask our guests to share is a place that matters for them in the Northwest. Is there any place that comes to mind? I think probably the Oregon coast, just because my grandparents lived there when I was very small. My mom grew up there. There was every trip. I've been going there my entire life, and it was it's always got this nice vibe of the public access. And I think my grandparents probably took sand from my sandbox from the beach, which I'm sure is uh -huh. all kinds of illegal, but uh -huh. that's the way they rolled. It's an awesome story. <laughs> and and, and where specifically on the Oregon coast did your grandparents live? Tillamook. They oh, ended okay. up that's, moving. That's a coastal town. Yeah. 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 Okay. They moved inland when, as they got older, but I have fond memories of, of going. Well, baseball season is coming, and let's shift our focus to A Ticket to the Pennant, A Tale of Baseball in Seattle. I discovered at the public library, I have a now eight-year-old, and we bring back buckets of books from the library every month, and it's you know a joy for us. And your book was right on top of the stack, and we Great. actually enjoyed it for many, many weeks, kind of read it over over again. I loved it because of the celebration of a specific place in Seattle that, that I really enjoy, the Rainier Valley. And so... I'd like to talk with you about the, how did you come up with the idea to write this book? Um, we move, I think we've been here about 16 years. 
we live right near Franklin High School, and I drive by the signs. There are two signs right around the Lowe's on Rainier and McClellan that say Six Stadium. And so I think from the moment we moved to the neighborhood, I was just intrigued. It's a busy intersection, a lot of cars, a lot of noise. I was always intrigued with the idea of a stadium, the sounds of a stadium, if, if I were there during that time. And so the seed was planted a long time ago. And, and usually when I come to a new place, I do, I think maybe some more than me tend to do this too, but I think about what it was, was like long, long ago, picturing who was here, what was it like before anyone was here, indigenous, whoever. Just it's fun to my imagination to go that way. And when I had my, when I was leaning from teaching more into storytelling, I was thinking in terms of regional history just because there's not a ton of regional history for kids. So I was starting to write more stories and articles for that reason. And I just started thinking baseball. How, how would I pull that off? How Do you have a connection to baseball? Did you play baseball? I played baseball very poorly in about second grade. Okay. Horrifying fear of ground balls. So I was, getting, I was not going to be any kind of star, to say the least. But I, when I was in the Bay Area, I, I attended my first professional game in my first huge park. And that was, that was a moment for me. I, de- I walked in, it was at San Francisco Giants, and I just, it was so cathedral-like. It was such a, I walked in there and it was just this gorgeous grass and hum of the crowd. It was just, all the cliches were smacking me right in the face. So that was when I kind of got on board with the magic of it. I'm no statistician, I'm no collector, but that, that hit me. I had a similar experience. I grew up in Tacoma, and I went, I went to Henry Foss High School. But right next door is the old um, the Tacoma uh, Farm League. The Rainiers. The, the Rainiers. Uh-huh. At the time, it was the um, Twins. It was connected to the Minnesota Twins. and so. Um, but we would go there as a child. And you talk about the sounds of... It seems like sounds are one of the triggers for you. You know, that intersection near where those signs are, near the Lowe's Hard, is it Lowe's Hardware? Mm-hmm. But then also thinking back to what the sounds were like with the baseball. I remember there was an organist that would play at that stadium. Shirley Mayo, I believe her name was, but it was just magic hearing mm-hmm. her sort of those rolling, lilting mm-hmm. organ music. Um, and for you, you talk a lot in your book about the broadcaster that was very well known at the time, that was like the voice of the Seattle Rainiers. Mm-hmm. As I started to research more, as we knew this was going to actually well, at least attempt to be a book, um, the research was, the most fun thing about the research was talking to people and watching a documentary and reading and talking to people was the most enthralling because they they get this distant look and and usually they want to talk about the people they saw games with. It's, it's a lot about love and people they cared about. Um, so... It was just fun to dig into all the different, I went to all the libraries, went to all the museums, Wing Luke and the African American Museum and called a few people. Dave Eskenazi is a local sports historian who's got a monstrous Rainier's collection and is passionate and it was all about him and his uncle. Pat Patrick was the bat boy back then. It was all about he and his brother. So it was always about who they went to the game with who they got to spend time with, talking about the team, and so that's what—that's where the layers started to 
So one of the things we're talking about these names, so Six Stadium, but then also we're talking about T-Mobile and Safeco, which don't ring, they don't have the same resonance because they're corporations. Mm-hmm. And one of the one of the themes I think is civic kind of civicness, civic pride and civic, you know, connections within community that sports can create. But also in a corporate world, it may erase some of that because people, the loyalty may not be there because it's become more of a business and, you know, much to the benefit of the players themselves who now are free agents can move around and command, you know, much better salaries. Mm-hmm. But even back then, uh, they didn't. Some old timers weren't happy with beer being associated with baseball. So sick, Emil Sick owned. Who Rainier, was sick? He owned Rainier Beer. So oh. the fact that he was going to put his name on a stadium and be a big beer baron and sell tons of beer was not popular with everyone back so then. So share the either. opposition because I, I, my father and mother came here to Seattle in the '60s, and the blue laws were in place. And I know that there's always been this sort of. Uh, sort of opposition to alcohol, mm. probably from religious framework. But mm-hmm. tell me more a little bit about the opposition, you know, what those, what was going on. I found, even walking around down by the old Rainier Brewery down in uh, Georgetown, you can see Six's name up on some of the brick buildings. Huh. Okay. But it was just, the vague recollection is that there was pushback. And I think it might have been in the old Seattle Times and the old PI that I found. There were articles stating not everyone was happy about beer being displayed everywhere. Awesome. So you did a number of interviews. Can you share any other of the people that that are most memorable, the conversations that you had and the people that you chose to speak with? Mm, Let's see. Pat Patrick, for sure. And I actually tried to get him to come to a couple events, and he he had some medical things going on, and he died soon after. So I didn't—I would have enjoyed giving him a book. John Skews, who illustrated this grew up in West Seattle and his parents were here and his grandparents were here. So he had very deep ties. Um, and he really enjoyed the research as well. And for him, it was a lot about collecting, marking a point in time that was quickly coming to a close visually. So it was important for him. Like he has his father's dashboard in the car. Um, his father used to drag race through the I-90 tunnel illegally and had fond stories about that. Harry Yoshimura, who owned Mutual Fish, started Mutual Fish. No, his father started it, sorry. He did not, he was, wasn't that interested in being, uh, getting photographs taken or anything, but he just, he was really moved that we were able to show the fish market and what effect it had had on the neighborhood. Um, Ramo Borakini, I talked to quite a few times about, he had memories of riding the trolley down Rainier Avenue, and he said, I think he remembered buying toys at Stuart Lumber. The Stuart Lumber building Mm -hmm. is still there. Mm -hmm. Um, And then taking it home and falling asleep on the trolley because of the click-clack, click-clack, click-clack was putting him to sleep. And for our listeners, a lot of our listeners may be new to Seattle, so can you just, what is Mutual Fish and Raymo Barakini's business, just to frame that? I mean, it seems to me as you're heading down Rainier from really the ID, the International District, Mm -hmm. you come across these old buildings. Maybe you could paint a picture, you know, for someone driving out of downtown toward Rainier Valley. Sure. Crafting the story, I was trying to think of what would a kid, a rabid baseball fan kid, and I found in the museum Mohai, there was a scrapbook in their collection a kid had collected. And it it just brought back memories of when you're a rabid collector of anything. You're just passionate and you want anything and everything you can scrabble together to paste in there and revel over. For the Mohai scrapbook, what was the contents? What was the focus? Was it just random things that this kid had collected? Yeah, or was... 
Yeah, ticket yeah. stubs, newspaper articles, uh, baseball cards. But it was a baseball theme. Scribbled notes. Oh, yeah, it was all Rainiers. It was wow. all Seattle Rainiers. Wow. Huh. And so that got me thinking. That, that helped me get into the kid state of mind or rabid collector. And so I started thinking, okay, what could this kid lose? And Dave Eskenazi had told me there were two seasons. I was searching for a season that was, I wanted it to reflect reality. So I wanted a season where something big happened. And then I wanted to take something away from Huey, who I called the main character. What, would he, what could he lose that would motivate him to run toward the park or whatever was happening? So I was trying to set him somewhere in the Rainier Valley where we'd have to pass through the neighborhood. And I really liked the, that these businesses had been around so long and they were still standing. I thought that was an interesting thing to have in a story so a kid could see, wow, this is a, that's, it was a long time ago and these buildings are still here. And they feel old, the buildings. Yeah. So I set him on Dearborn, I think, and I thought about so who, what neighbors he might have and why would he go to these businesses? How could I highlight those a little bit more? And yeah, it just sort of unfolded from there. And then, then it's all about building tension and getting him to the park and making the reader wonder and worry on each page. So one of the devices is this kid, Huey, gets to go. He goes in, he's, he lost a ticket, right, mm-hmm. to, the, to the pennant game. Yeah. And it's sort of a maze where he's going through these different businesses and talking to the owners of the people there mm-hmm. to help him solve this problem. Yeah, I, was, I thought when I go visit schools, I talk up to the kids about what else could I have him lose? He has a, lost a ticket, but what else would be important to a young baseball player? And so they always give me the, the glove, the jersey, the hat. Uh-huh. I had him have a ticket. That seemed more compelling to me, uh-huh. to a big big game, season-ending game. Sure. But yeah, the, I, I chose the businesses that were still visible when the book came out. So Stuart Lumber is still there. It's just an iconic-looking storefront. Mutual Fish, that wasn't the original location, but I would take my kids in there and get fish, trout, salmon, and they have crab tanks and lobster tanks of my kids when they were small, loved going in there and they'd always get a lollipop. Borakini's has been around forever, the bakery, and it just closed, which is a whole nother story. Borakini's was always fascinating to me to go into. Can you share what it's like? It just felt like a classic Italian-American place with a billion different things on the shelves, half of which I wouldn't buy, but I liked that they were there. Um, but it was mostly about birthday cakes and the wedding cakes, cakes. Yeah, the cakes are just incredible. And that I know people that, you know, it's, so that is Garlic Gulch, right? One time known as Garlic Gulch. I don't know if that applies, but I have some friends at our old time Seattle Italian American mm-hmm. yeah. community. And apparently a lot of um, Sicilian uh, immigrants came here and settled in this area and became farmers and you know, that's the name Garlic Gulch, mm-hmm. but um, Borakini's is, um, people would, not within that community, would always go and get cakes as well. People, it was a destination because their cakes were pretty magical. Yeah. You know, highly really decorated were. and they you really ordered were. them in advance. And they came fast. And I was, I was actually talking to my neighbor who's been in, her mom has been in the Pike Place market for decades and decades uh, before she passed. And then he, they're both Filipino-American and they, um, I've been here forever. And he said, I've been getting a birthday cake from there since I was one, Mm -hmm. since my very first. So everyone was stunned and sad when they announced they weren't going to reopen. And was that just the, um, what was the cause of their I think just pandemic, just, and maybe, and he's getting older and his wife died a 
bunch a few years ago, and maybe his, I don't know, I don't know the whole story, I'm sure. If the children are not interested in carrying on, then that's their decision It was a family well. business. It was yeah. a family business, yeah. yeah. Okay. But they, it was nice to have the book come out and help them the past few years. I guess people would take the book in and they would give them a free cookie and they could share, and I took a couple tours through there. It was just a nice way to make the story come alive. Even reading the Facebook posts after they closed of all the people's talk about stories, you know, everyone's very personal stories about getting a cake from there and how severed they felt from their childhood with the closure of it. And I love the fact that your um, illustrator included someone coming in to Borcini with the Yakima because Yakima is such a, you know, that's sort of the breadbasket for our fruit and vegetables mm-hmm. here in Western Washington. Yeah. So it's nice that that placemaking extends to Eastern Washington as like well. Like I said, he had a great time researching this. Were there any places that you kind of left out that you would have liked to have included had you had unlimited space? Or or do you think that this covers the the places that you that Huey goes through really told the story fully? Yeah, the African-American community, the, it, the baseball teams that were going on forever and ever and just didn't weren't in the newspaper as much. There was so much that would have been fun to include and it just wasn't it just wasn't part of the story or I hadn't made it part of the story enough in this regard. So So to be clear, this was a time when because of racism only white players were allowed to play in the Tacoma Rainiers. Yeah, I think it was in the let's see the first This is nineteen fifty five was your book. This is fifty five. The first two black players I believe on the Rainiers were fifty two or three. I don't remember exactly. Okay. But there were also just teams. There were teams playing all over, African American teams and they were there's a great book called Sunday Afternoons at Garfield Park, which Lyle Wilson painstakingly researched. Okay. Um, and Dave recommended that one to me. Mm-hmm. That catalogs all as many teams and games and leagues as he could find. And it's in the collection at Seattle Public Library. Okay. Hard to find. Mm-hmm. But that was fascinating. So I did include one family. I wanted to include one black family that I knew of that was baseball loving. And I did the Barnetts. There's a uh, park uh, on MLK called Barnett, Powell Barnett Park. And he's just a fascinating man. And I actually uh, heard from his son, his youngest son. And he gave me the feedback that I had painted them as somewhat two-dimensional, which I appreciated. I actually was surprised I hadn't heard anything back for a while. And so I actually went and talked to him, met him in his apartment, and he told me stories about his parents, and I and it was really nice. It was a, it was a op- learning opportunity for me. Um, it was an opportunity for me to let him know I wasn't trying to not hear his stories, or I don't know how I'm trying to say that, but I, I enjoyed my time with him. I learned quite a bit about his father. Got some great stories about his father inviting people over for some of the big boxing fights back then, and squashing some of the racism even between some of the Japanese-American neighbors he had and his black neighbors. And I don't know, it was just, it was a, I enjoyed my conversation. So this neighborhood, the Rainier Valley, is a mix of many, many different cultures, right? And it always has been. So can you kind of enumerate, because you mentioned we mentioned Italian-American, African-American. Yeah, Japanese-American, Filipino, just, and and some of those restaurants that I've, I've been visiting even just the past 16 years have have gone now, so... When I first came, the headlines for South Center were not good. It was there was not portrayed well in the press, and I was, it was, 
upsetting to me just because it's where I live and I'm a white guy living amongst, I'm just watching a bunch of people living their lives and having a, you know, living like anyone else. And if, and if every article I see is about a shooting, it just didn't seem to represent the neighborhood as well as I would have liked. So this was actually a nice way to highlight all the different ethnicities or as many as I could. And I was careful as a white guy to try and go and talk or listen first to the museums, especially the wing Luke was wonderful. Um, there's a Japanese American language school that I went to and visited their collection. Um, I loved learning about Bobby Balsina, who was one of the first Filipino American players in the Pacific coast league, how beloved he was by kids. And, um, yeah, just, just tried to highlight the diverse group of players and fans that were all brought together by this sporting community. And Mike the Barber, there was a kind of a barber shop featured. Yeah. I remember my neighbor telling me, you got to go get your haircut by this guy. Uh, Frank, he's been there for decades and I never did mostly cause I have very little hair, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, one day I was walking by to go to the bus and there was a little note, a hand scrawled note in the window saying, I'm, it's been a wonderful 50 some years. It's time to retire. And that was it. He didn't say goodbye to anybody, but he'd been cutting hair in, across the stadium and the building was just torn down within, I think the past three years. And you could still see the little electrical connections where the barber pole was. Huh. But yeah, Ramo Borakini said he had gone there for his entire adult life to get his hair cut. Huh. And there was a picture, the Historical Society had a picture of the barber as well. So another kind of topic, you touched on this a little earlier, is that you took liberty with the truth here, like any great story, because the places that Huey goes through did not all exist at the same time, or the people in them weren't necessarily alive or would have said those things at the same time on this trip. So can you talk about that, just sort of how you weaved a story out of the truth, where you took the liberties, and why you did that? Mutual Fish, for one, was not located on Rainier Avenue during 1955, but I selfishly just wanted it there. So being the creator, I can move it wherever I want, as long as I'm fair. Also, as a child walking to a stadium, so there's probably just physical distance. Was that? Mm-hmm. It I'd, seems like you needed to compress that in order to tell the story. I did, and I that took a lot of shuffling. I was I was really trying to move him down a real Rainier Avenue, and timing it along with innings. One thing that Pat Patrick said that that always mesmerized me was how you could walk through the neighborhood and hear the game everywhere. So it was basically the only sport in town or everyone was excited or enough people were excited that it was audible, especially it's, for a big championship game. It's also kind of a valley, right? You've got two different kind of hills going up sort of toward the Lake Washington and then up, you know, toward mm-hmm. um, all the way over toward the um, Pac-Med building that we used to call. So it is, it probably really was a, sort of auditorily, it probably yeah. resonated. With Rainier, Mount Rainier, just standing up there huge at the end. Leo Lassen used to call it uh, upside down ice cream cone, something like that. Everyone knew about Leo Lassen. Everyone would like to do his voice. So that, for the people who haven't, you know, aren't local or haven't read your book yet, tell us about Leo Lassen and why was he important to Six Stadium and to your story? 
I didn't know much about him until, honestly, just you listening to his voice. There's a couple clips of him. There's an old record LP, I think, of his voice. Um, I did a book trailer that's on my website that has his voice as well, but kind of nasally. But everyone raved about his baseball knowledge and how he would call a game and that he would often educate you while you watched or listened. And he was there for decades and was just the voice of the Rainiers. I think like any good broadcaster, he brought it alive. So getting over all the timing right, how Huey moved through the blocks, where he got to hear the game, on what radio. So in the business, another thing I do with kids is have them look for the radios on the pages because the radio is what delivers Leo Lassen's voice. Mm. And so... Is there a radio on every page or just are no, they just hidden just, throughout here? Just whenever Leo Lassen speaks, I, I felt see. like we had I to see. have a radio. I see. To be honest. And uh-huh. but I guess, yeah, Pat Patrick, the fact that he could hear it everywhere got me thinking about community. I think that's was one of my first thoughts on how I would tell the story or or the soul of the story was that was community. How when we're passionate about anything especially a big sports team, it forms community from a lot of diverse backgrounds. Has that changed in terms of, uh, let's just think about, what, what, what was the league? What was the, um, it was called the Pacific Coast League. Mm-hmm. Can you just, and you, you mentioned that there were a lot of African-American players in leagues that were excluded from the Pacific Coast League, at least until the 50s. Mm-hmm. But can you tell us a little bit about the sort of, history, and I know you're not necessarily a baseball historian, mm-hmm. but currently we have Major League Baseball and National League Baseball, but what what happened to the Pacific Coast League and what happened to Six Stadium? Pacific Coast League, as I understand it, was, it was like the West Coast's version of the Major League. And Dave Eskenazi said that it, it fell apart for a few reasons. One was airplane travel. And again, I'm no expert, but something about being able to go, I I don't remember his exact reasons, but something about that shortened the distance between the coasts enough that it wasn't the West Coast League anymore. I see. And then, is it the two teams, I think the Giants and the, the Dodgers went to LA and San Francisco, and that just changed everything. So the Dodgers were obviously East Coast, New York City team. And so coming to the West Coast, probably, I know that my father, was, who grew up in Brooklyn, it was just tragic. It was like one of the great tragedies right. along with World War II of right. his childhood was losing the Dodgers. Yeah. But I, I see what you're saying, that a lot of that happened simultaneous with the advent of air travel, inexpensive air travel. And so I would imagine the different leagues were no longer balkanized by time yeah. and space. Yeah. Something about it. Yeah. Something was changing. Um, what was your other question? Yeah, the what happened to Six Stadium and why is it no longer there? Was it just about real estate or the, the or did the team sort of stop playing in it prior this, to its demolition or Yeah, this the team stopped playing. It sat for a long time. I had a lot of people who read or we I, who would talk to me after events say how they learned to drive in the lot. That was kind of the kind of the comments uh-huh. I got after okay. the, over the years. Okay. There were some concerts. They did fix it up for the there was a Seattle major league team for one year, and I'm blanking on the name. Any baseball fan will chide me for this. Um, so they, they tried to fix it up for that season, and then that team ended up 
closing down after one year. And then after that, Six Stadium was kind of destined for destruction. So, yeah, there's a Lowe's in the space now. Uh-huh. There is still a home plate. It's getting more and more covered up by pallets of stuff. There's an actual physical home plate? There's a home plate in Lowe's you can visit. There's a, a metal cutout of a player showing where they would stand. Is the home plate in the same location that it used to be? Supposedly, yeah. Huh. Where in Lowe's is that? <laughs> <laughs> right in the entrance, but it is fun to go there and feel where home plate oh, was. I'll have to go do that. That sounds great. Yeah. Well, we ask our guests to bring something physical to the studio to share, and I was curious if you did. I did. I brought a harmonica that my granddad had, and he always used to play it at the weirdest times. And my granddad was a very, he was intimidating and intriguing all at the same time. He was a Tillamook, Oregon coast guy knew every kind of tree because he would part logger, part house painter, part um, he would take his milk down to the Tillamook Cheese Factory. He just did everything to make a living. They didn't have much money, but he played this harmonica Hmm. and it was given to me after he died. And I just, I don't know, he was just an important character in my life. And I will say that if a harmonica were a grand piano, that harmonica would be a grand piano because it's um, incredibly embellished, large and beautiful. Do you play? Uh, poorly. Can you hum a few bars? (laughs) Beautiful. Thank you. Mark, you also brought a binder. Is that... I'm assuming that is a research you did for your book? Or yeah, some of yeah, articles I got from old Seattle Times collection and Seattle PI, um, articles, photographs. It's kind of how I got the voice for some of the old way of speaking. The sports writers were, had really colorful ways of describing things, so it was fun to help me get into the mood. Is, is that because people spoke differently at the time or because it was like a convention among that, you know, a sportscaster had to have a specific type of voice or help build their credibility? Yeah, maybe. It just, and I'm sure they used a different vernacular back then. Um, one phrase that comes to mind is that the seat cushions fell like snow, which is the end of the book, and that's straight from... And again, even the reporters, the names are things we see on street signs now. Um, uh, Royal Brom, I think, is the one who wrote that, I think. Okay. Uh, who was Royal Brom, do you recall? He was an old civic servant, always in public office, but also just seemed like an influencer. He did every, all kinds of stuff, and uh-huh. his name is on a street sign down by the stadium. Huh. Uh, Fred Hutchinson also is someone I should mention. So who is that? So he graduated from Franklin High, uh, was a huge baseball prospect, played for Franklin, went to play in the pros. I think he played on a local team for a little bit, but then was sucked up into the pros quite early. He then managed in the, like Cincinnati in the major league for a little while and then got lung cancer, but a beloved Seattle son for sure. And, and the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center is named after him? Yeah, his brother named, started, his brother was a physician. Huh. And he started the Cancer Center. He also managed the 1955 season which was another big reason that I chose that year to base the book on because he was such a central figure. Huh. 
So he's like Michael Jordan. He transitioned out of just being merely an athlete into the business and management. Mm-hmm. Huh? And, the, and they brought him back when they needed to shake things up, to, okay. to excite the base, uh-huh. I, I guess. What else do you have in there? Oh, I, the old wooden face contests. The Seattle Times used to hold a competition for boys, only boys, unfortunately, but they would go around to different play fields and invite kids to come throw as many pitches in a row as they could through a big wooden cutout. And actually, Dave felt bad for not telling me about this early enough because he thought it should be in the book. But, uh-huh. Do you um, agree with him? <laughs> I wish I would have known earlier, yes. Uh-huh. But that's okay. Yeah, um, that, That's been a fun thing to do with kids over the years, too. So I've got a lot of great photos of his, that, of kids, again, of all different ethnicities there for the for the contest. And they, they'd get nice treatment uh, if they won. So I had a couple uh-huh. couple grown men or grandfathers saying one of their proudest moments was, you know, getting number of whatever or winning. So this was like a little novelty before the game started, they would have kids come out? I don't know if it was during a game. It was just its own thing. I see. Sort a of a, stand, a sideshow type thing. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Uh-huh. Awesome. Um, what sort of food was served? I don't know. Hot dogs. <laughs> Actually, you know what? There is one... Um, Dave has a picture of the 55 team, and then we also have a program for 55 that he gave me. Uh, So there's one page with the menu, and I have a picture of this to show kids when I go talk. But yes, hot dogs, chips. Someone wrote their scores in here. Uh, Where is it? It's fun to show them the prices kids these days. Soft drinks, ice cream, peanuts, hot dogs. You could rent a cushion for 15 cents and a scorebook was 15 cents. Coffee was 10 cents. Okay. Yeah. Ice cream, 10 cents. Not bad. No. Can I see? Yeah. There's a Derigold ad. Oh, there's even Stuart Lumber ad on there. That's fun. It is. I should say too, I got to put my fourth grade teacher in the book, Miss Severson. She was my favorite ever. And so uh, she was your teacher in Oregon? She was my teacher in Oregon. Um, I sent her the book saying thank you. Um, and her daughter got a hold of me later saying she'd been crying all morning because it was such so mm, moving for very her. Very touching. Yeah, it was very, very nice. And I got a, I got a letter from someone during the pandemic that was, uh, made my year as well that she was in Florida with her new baby and husband unable to come home to Seattle where she'd grown up. I think a third generation Seattleite. Um, and she was reading the book to her baby. Uh, and it really meant a lot since she wasn't able to come home. So it was, uh-huh. that made me feel good. So I'd love to shift for a moment toward any future projects or current projects that you're working on and what interests you now. And, you know, have you closed the book on this and yeah, other I, stories to tell? Yeah, I've been working on novels. Um, I've moved away from regional history. I wrote a couple more that never went anywhere. So I'm working on novels, which is it's just a longer, longer slog, a new craft to learn and perf- not perfect. There's never perfecting, but, um, um, so I've been digging into that, but it's been interesting to, in terms of place, I guess, um, what's fun about living in a place and, and challenging is to own where I live admit that I live here, admit that it's an interesting place. You know, when you, when you move through it every day, it's, it doesn't seem as interesting as it should, but I've been trying to 
Like I based this last story in the Madrona neighborhood. I've got another one on a road trip through the West. Yeah. I appreciate that because one of the things that I love so much about A Ticket to the Pendant is how much you invested in the, it's the research and the color and the collaboration with the, your illustrator as well. But it was deeply invested in a very, very specific place. And I think that that is also what defines us as human beings is that we do occupy a specific place or, or multiple places in the world and it, it defines us to some degree. Mm-hmm. So I just like the fact that you describe it as owning you know, you're just invested, you take it on. So what can you share anything about these other places that you are attempting to own? Uh, yeah, I just, the one I'm working on right now, which I will probably send out soon, is set in Madrona. But it, it's fun to think of things through a child's eyes, too, of, you know, a four-block trip is a big deal when you're 11 or 12. And But I've been playing with, also as a white man moving through the world, how a white kid when things aren't when it when it isn't modeled well to talk about race for everyone how do i get him to think about it in a nuanced way um i don't think that we see that enough i mean it's obvious we haven't seen that enough so that's been a thing that's been taking up a lot of brain space so i know madrona was like there was like a in the 1960s, there was a civil rights, like a, it was the site of a lot of sort of, a lot of the leaders in civil rights, I think, met in Madrona, as I recall. Mm. So again, for our listeners, what, what is Madrona? Where is it located in Seattle? And it's just a few blocks long, but maybe you could just, again, paint a picture as to what it what it's like now. It's, it's I think it's just a beautiful neighborhood. Yeah, I don't know a ton about its history. I just was upset up some of my book in uh, Al Larkin's Park, which I don't know anything about Al Larkin's, but I will dig. Uh-huh. And then I know Powell Barnett was, a, and he was, again, an amazing man, but he started a chapter of NAACP. He started a band. He was uh, coaching Little League kids. He helped some of the Japanese Americans who were interned um, and stood up for them. He just, and very involved in one of the churches, the Central District Churches, and I know he had, he was on one of the councils there. And it's one, yeah, Madrona is just up from the lake, as far as I know. I don't know the exact boundaries, but uh-huh. um, there's a small little business area that's really quaint, and I go there to, with some writing friends, or I did pre-pandemic for every Thursday. It was fun. Um, yeah, it's it's going through a shift right now of businesses, as mo- a lot of the city and the world is. And but. then... And then if um, if a ticket to the pennant is uh, about baseball, is there anything you can share about the dramatic tension or what unfolds in this novel? Um, a kid who's feeling a bit snubbed by the world. He's dyslexic, and his mom runs a martial arts studio. So I am tinkering with a unit in social studies that talks about appropriation. So he's stressing about a, his mom, white mom, running a taekwondo studio. So it's basically him wrestling with some stuff. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for being our guest today. You're welcome. And Mark, is there anything else you'd like to share before we wrap up? Yeah, I would love to put in a plug for all of our amazing independent bookstores in the Seattle region. They're so good and they're passionate booksellers doing good work. And if you do want to buy a book or any books, please support the local stores. I will say that Elliott Bay Books on Capitol had a ticket to the pennant. I got their last copy this morning. <laughs> they put <laughs> it on hold and they asked me if I could order more, which actually I'm going to do. Thanks again for being our guest. You're welcome. 
Join us next time when we're going to shift our focus to homeland, homeland lost and recovered through the eyes of some of the members of Seattle's Sephardic Jewish community. It's a conversation that will span centuries, continents, and countries, and you won't want to miss it. To learn more about Mark Holtzen, you can visit markholtzen.com. And if you'd like to win a free copy, autographed copy of A Ticket to the Pennant, email me and put in A Ticket to the Pennant in your subject line. And the first email that we receive will receive a copy of this book. Our audio engineer is Daniel Gunther. We have administrative support from Mary Christine Barbour, and we record every month at Jack Straw Cultural Center in the U District. If you have a place that matters to you, please get in touch and share it with me. If you enjoyed our podcast, please leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time, this is Edward Krigsman. Take care.